everybody. Welcome back to the Empire Strikes First podcast. This week we're having uh, Stephen Olakara on. But before we get to that interview with Stephen, um, we have some big news. Our own Andre Walton was just voted by the Sheboygan City Council to be the alder person for Sheboygan District 10. So just wanted to do a quick little clip. Congratulate Andre. Um, Andre, congratulations. What I really wanted to ask you, and you know, we didn't get quite into this because you were planning to run for city council before this seat was vacated. Um, and we didn't get to have this discussion because this all came so quick. But um, you know, what motivated you to run in Sheboygan and what are some issues that you think you can have a big impact on on the Sheboygan City Council? Yeah, yeah. Um you're right. It moved way faster. I got like a call <laughs> about a week and a half ago and he was like, Hey, this is happening. I was like, Oh man, I was not prepared for this, but yeah, it's been an exciting little journey. I worked really hard to, uh, get this appointment. Um, we will still have to run in April. So the campaign's still a go. Uh, we're going to be working hard and knocking on doors, talking to constituents, getting to know people and letting people know who I am. And I'm not sure if I'll have an opponent, uh, but if I do, I'm ready for the challenge and, they can bring it on. But to get to your uh, to get to your question about, you know, what what made me want to run and what I plan on doing is um, basically it, I think I, I live on the south side of Sheboygan. I live in apartments. And one of the, the things about living on this side is it's kind of a little bit of ignored part of the well, at least in my area, because I live in apartments. And when you live in apartments, they don't really get a lot of political attention. And that really serves to un- underrepresent the community because if you're only representing the homeowners in the community, you're only here on one side of the constituent issues. And I've noticed that you know people who live in the trailer parks, people who live in the apartment complexes, they don't really have their voices elevated or heard, which I think is a huge issue. Um, no disrespect to my to to the guy I've replaced. Uh, he did not reach out to those communities. And I think it was doing a disservice to the voices of, of those people. And, and another issue is that the voter turnout in Sheboygan is extremely low. Um, my goal is to increase the voter turnout amongst young people, amongst people who are uh, in not the best financial status and show that we can, we're working on the city government to make their lives better. But one of the few, the few things that I think we can work to do on the city, uh, city council is fight for affordable housing. Um, if, if you know a little bit about Sheboygan, it's, it's a city that uh, has been having a lot of uh, downtown development where they're building high-end apartment complexes and condos. But the issue is that young people can't afford them. Um, it's it, it and what that does is it stagnates uh, bringing new jobs here because if people can't afford the housing, then obviously jobs new jobs can't come. So it it, it stagnates the growth of the city, which means it stagnates tax revenues. It stagnates um, you know the 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 uh, planning for public works that you can work on. So one of the things that I think I can really make an impact on is making sure that we have affordable housing so that people of my age and people of lower economic status can afford to live here and actually have a good job. And also just work really hard on uh, fixing our roads. Uh, and this is not just a problem in Sheboygan, but roads in Wisconsin throughout all of Wisconsin have issues and making sure that we, we fully fund our roads in, in the best way we can and also be a, um, 
a city lobbyist to the to uh, to to our Congress people. One of the things that is very powerful about being in an alder position is that you can call up your Congress people and have have those one on one meetings and and fight for the issues that we need for our citizens. So whether I have to call uh, Glenn Grothman and tell him to fight for the infrastructure bill, I'll do it because we need fixed roads and in Sheboygan because ultimately if you have really good roads, that's just going to increase business. Um, and also just, you know, being really hardline on conservation. Uh, I know a few years back we had issues with uh, pollution on our lakeshore uh, and basically the best beautiful thing about uh, about Sheboygan is, have, is our lake and making sure we maintain and make sure it's a clean uh, lakeshore is going to be extremely important. Uh, so those are like three things I think I can have immediate impact on. And yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing opportunity that uh, came quicker than I was expecting. Uh, but, you know, it's fun. Uh, my first day, I uh, got sworn in uh, and, and immediately a three hour meeting. So there was no chill, no time <laughs> to adjust. It was just like, get to it. And I was like, all right, let's go. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity. Um, I'm looking to get more young people involved in the campaign. Uh, so election is April. We're, we're probably going to launch in November. And yeah, we're just going to keep the keep the ball rolling that we just started. Great. Well, congratulations one more time, Andre. And without further ado, here's our interview with Steve. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the interview. So I, I still got Andre here, and I also got uh, Stephen Olakara, who is running for the Democratic nomination to run against Ron Johnson in 2022. Thanks for coming on, Stephen. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. So um, why don't why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself, um, your background, uh, you know, all about you? Sure. Well, I'm an unconventional candidate to be running for the U.S. Senate. I grew up in Brookfield, Wisconsin. My parents are immigrants from India. And so uh, I, the whole idea of getting involved in politics uh, was a foreign concept for me growing up. I was into music, playing in a lot of different bands. Uh, and then professionally, I figured out going to engineering, uh, which was highly uh, preferred in my family. And my mom is a longtime, uh, was a longtime unionized public employee. Uh, and my dad uh, is an engineer and my brother is an engineer as well. And so we learned something really important as immigrants growing up in suburban Milwaukee, which is um, when our country is at its best, our diversity is our strength. And I saw, you know, the good parts of where uh, we were able to integrate with our community. And for me, music was a huge part of that. Um, but also where people were less exposed to other cultures and how that affected our, our experience growing up. And, you know, that dual story is in many ways the story of our country. And so uh, I only thought about getting involved in politics uh, when I was towards the end of high school, because I noticed how through music, how powerful it was when you would truly listen to another musician and you'd create a space of openness and empathy and recognize the humanity of each other. And the type of art was so much more original and more dynamic. And I really felt like that's what our democracy is at its best. Uh, my jazz instructor, I'll never forget, said the most important skill in playing jazz music is listening. And I often say on the campaign trail, the number one skill of being a U.S. senator should be listening as well. 
so I felt like Barack Obama's campaign really kind of embodied that spirit leading into 2008, the idea of creating a more inclusive politics uh, that inspires young people. And I didn't know anyone in politics went to an event and got uh, linked up with the campaign that way. And basically, uh, since an opportunity to open for Obama at one of his rallies here in Wisconsin, I've been on this path ever since then to create a more inclusive and honest politics. Originally, uh, founding the Millennial Action Project, which has trained about 2,000 young elected leaders across the country, building coalitions to pass legislation that I'm sure we'll get into, and also uh, now running for the U.S. Senate to elevate this movement uh, to the next level. So um, my, my whole goal in this campaign is to demonstrate that this new kind of politics is possible on a larger scale. Uh, and that starts with uh, campaign finance reform, getting big money out of politics and getting the corruption out of politics. And once we do that, I often call it changing the business model of politics. Then we can also pursue our dignity for all agenda, which gets to climate change, among other issues. But for me, you know, graduating from UW-Madison, my biggest question is how do we take on climate change? And my number one legacy of being in the U.S. Senate will be passing climate change legislation. Yeah, so that really good to to get you to know you a little bit better. And, you know, you bet you have been involved in politics for a while, as you said, um, founding the Millennial Action Project, which has helped young elected officials all over the country. Um, but this is, you know, Ron Johnson sucks. I don't I don't think that that's a big debate in, in these circles. Um, but like being that he sucks, there are a lot of people that want to be the person to run against him. Um, you know, he's unpopular. He's childish, but also like a grumpy old man at the same time. Um, so what made you think like now is the time now is when I want to run for office, um, even in a really crowded field with, you know, to be honest, like other good progressive candidates, what made you want to run now? Yeah. So there are two reasons and I, a two part criteria. One is, can I make an original contribution in the race and in the U S Senate? Uh, if, I felt like there were other people who would be better who could make that original contribution, then I'd be fine, uh, uh, probably going into music perhaps. And the second was, uh, can I win? And that was really important because if I'm asking so much of people to give their time and money, I need to know in my heart of hearts that uh, we can win and we have a really good chance of doing that. So on the first one, I really believe that uh, in 2022, Wisconsin likely will again be the tipping point state. Our state has become the symbol of toxic, polarized politics. Uh, we've become the symbol in many ways of anti-democratic uh, behavior uh, with efforts to restrict voting rights, as an example, among other things. Uh, we've become a national flashpoint. And so I saw all the stars aligning for Wisconsin to reclaim its place as a true laboratory of democracy, to reclaim its place as a state that leads on clean government and good governance reforms. That's the true tradition of our progressive tradition of our state. And so my thinking was, if we can unlock the solution to create a more honest and inclusive politics here in Wisconsin, that will ripple across the state. Uh, and it's my belief that a traditional politician uh, won't do that. Uh, and the, some, the career politicians who are in it just for themselves, 
looking to get a promotion or whatever their motivation is, um, that's not going to get it done. Uh, I, I truly believe we were talking about this earlier on there's the idea that, you know, you have two types of people get involved in politics, people who want to be something and people who want to do something. The people who want to be something, they just want to get an office and they probably want to stay in office. And there isn't a larger moral calling behind that. Uh, people want to do something. They're willing to take those risks. They're willing to stick their neck out. Um, and that's my goal in this campaign. I feel like this is a once in a generation uh, opportunity to save our democracy. And then the second one, can I win? That actually plays to the ties to the first point, which is I'm the candidate who will be able to expand the electorate and attract a lot of people who are feeling politically homeless right now. So if we think what's the strategy to win in 2022 and replace Ron Johnson, a midterm election where we have a Democrat in the White House, well, we know historically what that often means. I mean, usually the out party has an advantage, especially for Senate races. So the best way we can ensure we win in this race is put up a candidate who A, has a track record of getting things done, but B, uh, and also can speak authentically to their mission, why and their purpose, uh, but also importantly, uh, bring new people into the political process. People who are feeling extremely disenfranchised, marginalized, uh, just pushed off to the sidelines and get them involved in politics. That to me is a pro-democracy movement that's set to win next year. Awesome. Yeah, I really appreciate your take on, you know, creating an honest government. I think that's something that's been lacking. And we can see that directly how, you know, the reconstruction uh, or the reconciliation bill and the, and the infrastructure bill is going down. Um, but it's one thing to say those things on the campaign trail and actually do it once in office. I mean, we can see that with Kirsten Cinema, who used to be a a Green Party uh, candidate, and she ran on lowering drug prices. Now she she actively works against it, and I think that really has to do with the direct influence of money in politics. How will you ensure voters that not only will you stick by the words that you say uh, that you ran on, but also uh, fight for those same for those same issues once elected in office? Because we do know that things do change when people go get that DC brain going mm -hmm. down. So. Yeah. How, how do you assure voters that you'll stick to the guns that you ran on? Yeah, I think that's exactly why we can't elect traditional politicians in this race. We can't elect those people who just want to be something. And it's very clear. I think we've got a good BS radar. We can tell when someone's just trying to pander and say whatever it takes to get elected. And I think this is a huge differentiation for us because I've articulated from the beginning of this campaign uh, the higher calling that I'm trying to serve in terms of getting money out of politics and climate change legislation. And so the way you can ensure that I truly believe in these things uh, is uh, what I've already done and what I've passed. I'm the only candidate in this race who can point to concrete legislative victories. How crazy is that? The youngest candidate has the most successful legislative experience uh, in the race. And so when you talk about, for example, fair maps and putting an end to partisan gerrymandering, well, that's an issue that we worked on and successfully passed. Um, we played a leading role in one of our states and then a, a supportive role in a number of other states that uh, got rid of partisan gerrymandering. Or when I talk about campaign finance reform, I'm drawing on a real world experience where we help to protect uh, the clean elections law in Connecticut right now. And that model I think is the best one available. And so I'm saying, I wanna scale that up 
nationwide. Uh, so for all of these issues, I have a track record of actually passing legislation uh, that, that I'm speaking about on the campaign trail. And then the second thing you can look at is uh, I'm, I'm not trying to, um, like, you know, I'm, I'm not funding this campaign with big corporate special interests. Uh, and, you know, you'll, and, and that'll be clear for, for the duration of this campaign. Um, and I think the other thing you can point to, you know, I often joke how uh, we were, Anders and I were talking about this earlier about how, you know, we love how Bernie Sanders has been saying the same thing for 30 years. And I've been saying the same thing for the last 10 years. Uh, my entire time being in public life, you can look up everything I've ever said. Uh, and it's been totally consistent about the need to change our government and our politics. Um, so I've been on the same mission this entire time. Um, the legislation we've worked on, all my comments all, uh, you know, back that up. And then I think, you know, there's the intangible of, I think what I hear on the campaign trail when people hear my remarks or after a Q&A session, they say like, A, you talk like a normal person and B, I can tell you're speaking from the heart. Uh, and that you can't fake guys. It's, it's, it's either real or it's not. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that, you know, I've, we had the same conversation. We had Dr. Jillian Bettino on last week and I, we had a similar talk about like a lot of times politicians and people running for office don't give the public enough credit and kind of just run on platitudes and BS, um, but really like people can see through that more than people like that would like to acknowledge. Um, and, you know, it's really important to just center campaigns on like speaking with people on like a personal level and being meaningful about what you say. Um, so kind of, kind of taking that as a segue, um, you know, you're, you're kind of, I don't know if you call it your slogan, like you're kind of the motto of your campaign is dignity for all. You know, I, I know that you are in favor of, you know, universal health care, um, the Green New Deal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but more specifically, like what makes the like a Stephen Olacara candidacy special? Like what does dignity for all really mean beyond, um, you know, just those progressive policies? Yeah, the biggest difference is actually delivering. You know, when I, it, it, it's, for me, I'm not satisfied putting out a great tweet. I'm not satisfied introducing messaging bills. For me, the metric of success is passing legislation. I think we often, you know, we forget that because we're all busy, but like when we look at members of Congress right now, who has a track record of getting things done and who doesn't? And sometimes, um, people can talk a good game, but they don't actually deliver. And so in my view, it, it's, it's really cheap just to be able to say, well, I support all these things, but who's willing to build the coalitions and pass legislation? That to me is the difference. And we don't have time to wait. Like we need to solve climate change by 2030. And so getting into these abstract uh, conversations, getting into the gamesmanship, where I've literally seen members of Congress who would rather not pass a bill in order to gain a political edge. That to me is the definition of self-serving politics, where it's more important for you to raise more money, it's more important for you to posture than it is to solve the bill. 
Um, and I've seen that happen because often there have been bills I support where I've delivered members who are ready to, you know, co-sign and they're like, no, no, this is just a messaging bill. We didn't actually want this one to pass. Really? I, I thought public service, you were there to serve the people, not serve yourself. Um, and so that's the biggest difference with my campaign. It all goes back to, do you want to do something or do you want to be something? And for this primary race, I encourage people to use that lens. And that gets back to Andre's question earlier, of like, who's actually going to stick their neck out. Well, look at who's willing to take the biggest risks right now. You know, I've said before, like there are a number of issues where I'd be willing to lose my seat over the issue. Like if you, if, you, if there isn't a cause that you believe in so much that you're willing to lose your seat uh, over, then you shouldn't be running uh, in the first place. And I'm unafraid to talk about issues that most Democrats won't talk about, like term limits, for example. Uh, term limits will help in create an infusion of young energy uh, in Congress right now. Congress right now is about two decades older than the average American. Uh, so I'm willing to put myself out there. And, and uh, I think others who just say the right thing, you, you don't know if they're going to put themselves out there when it really, really counts. Yeah, I think that's that's really important what you said uh, about being able to run on something and being willing to stick to your values and lose your seat. I think what happens too often in, in politics is people compromise their values just in, in just to secure their careers. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the major problem with our political system now is that it's it's career careerism over you know working for your constituents. But uh, I did want to talk a little bit about foreign policy. I think it isn't always talked about enough, at least considering how uh, imperialistic the United States is. Uh, even though, uh, credit to Joe Biden, he ended the Afghanistan war that was the longest war in US history. Um, and I think I was like six or seven when, when we invaded. So it's, it's kind of crazy how long we were there, but- uh, I was like we, one. We still currently, yeah, <laughs> baby. Um, but we still occupy and, and bomb a number of countries, including Somalia, we aid bombings in uh, Yemen, and I, I think it's it's something to say how a lot of politicians aren't willing to fix the problems at home, such as Flint, Michigan's water system. But we can spend endless amounts of money on nation building and bombing other countries. Uh, I guess the question is, what is your take on ending endless wars and imperialism and using those resources to fix? the issues that we have here. Yeah, I, I not only support ending all these endless wars, and that's a core part of my foreign policy, but I look even deeper at what's the root issue behind that. I think the root issue is the military industrial complex that has been profiting off of these wars. And that's why I talk so much about money and politics, because if you want to understand why is a system corrupt? Why do you have these dysfunctional outcomes? Well, there's an incentive right now, a lot of people profit on war, people profit on conflict, and we have to cut off that incentive. And I think over the last, and certainly in my lifetime, the biggest foreign policy blunder was getting involved in nation building uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and the lives we've lost, the money we've spent on it, uh, not to mention our diminished standing in the world are huge costs that those leaders who are making those wrong-headed decisions won't have to bear the brunt of. They're gonna be long gone. A lot of those leaders, they are gone, right? It's our generation that's going to inherit the consequences of this. 
And meanwhile, we've been uh, neglecting issues like climate change, where we will be inheriting that issue and we need much more global leadership and US needs to do a lot more on the international stage there. Uh, so I think we need to end this policy of, of endless wars, uh, endless, uh, this kind of arrogant idea of uh, constantly uh, thinking we can build up every nation um, around the world that isn't in our image. And, um, you know, and, and really get at the root issue here of, um, of why it has become so profitable to fight wars. Uh, it's very easy to enter into a war. It's almost impossible uh, to end wars. And uh, that's wrong. And we have to change that. Yeah, um, I'm I'm 100% on board with that. I know that Andre and I have both kind of been of the mindset, like the one thing that we can really point to that Joe Biden has done that, you know, we're we're like really happy about and there's no like caveats like he did this, but is he ended the war in Afghanistan. And I think that straightforward, like I can say that that was the best decision he could have possibly made. And I, you know, um, there have been pitfalls in other areas like canceling student debt and raising the minimum wage. But that is one thing that I can look at and appreciate adding on to this idea of imperialism though. Um, I'm sure, you know, uh, just recently the Congress passed a bill to send $1 billion of new aid to Israel to help build the iron dome, which is, uh, basically a defense system which is supposed to basically work autonomously to shoot um, missiles out of the air before they can actually hit the ground and kill people. Um, and while sure that's potentially a way to reduce deaths in Israel, Palestine has no Iron Dome. Palestine just had, you know, earlier, God, I think it was earlier this year during all the conflicts going on there, they had literally a press building bombed um, by Israel. So, you know, and this is a tricky issue to handle because even among like Democrats, there is this really touchy thing where in a lot of ways, when you come out and stand for Palestinian rights, like the the gut response from a ton of people is, oh, that's anti-Semitic because you're speaking out against the nation of Israel. I think I th a lot of people would agree that, you know, there's there's a difference between the religion of Judaism and the nationality of Israelites. But how would you manage that balance um, fighting for Palestinian rights and making sure we end wars? Um, you know, what what's kind of the way that you would govern on on those issues, being that they can be really touchy, even with people on the on the left? Well, I think the dignity for all frame has to apply to our foreign policy, including the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, we need to affirm the dignity of Palestinians to lead lives free of uh, fear uh, that a building might get bombed next to them and, um, and to have some economic security too. Um, the level of poverty there is, is disturbing and uh, dignity for Israelis as well. Uh, they need the dignity to be able to live uh, in freedom and without fear that there will be missiles uh, falling on them as well. And, you know, this is a conflict that's gone on for generations and generations. I have some personal experience uh, for, um, I helped to launch an organization called the African Middle Eastern Project, um, which works with 
human rights refugees uh, from that area. And I've worked with a number of them who, uh, who've been directly involved in, like in one case, a woman, she um, married a Palestinian and she would have to cross the border into Israel uh, every day for work. And it was uh, just alarming the things that she would see and just the, the level of security, it's, it's, um, it's not sustainable. Uh, the key there is the young people. Uh, the young peace activists um, who are willing to, just like we've talked about here domestically, willing to stick their necks out, often at the criticism of people in their own space and their own tribe to say, I want to create dialogue. I want to create listening. I want to help us see the humanity uh, in each other. And by doing that, you can have a real dialogue. And um, that's going to take some time, but I'm, based on what I've seen firsthand, uh, there's a lot of promise there. We just need some of those young peace activists to kind of rise through the ranks into uh, positions of government leadership. And, um, you know, and in the meantime, like defensive measures, I think can actually help reduce uh, some of the back and forth and some of the casualties uh, that happen. Uh, but we need to achieve a durable, lasting peace where um, both societies can live um, in harmony. And it, it's likely that it would be a two-state solution um, uh, as much as we would hope that you can create this kind of pluralistic, multi-ethnic kind of democracy that involves everyone. Because of the historical factors, it'll likely be a two-state solution. And uh, we need to empower the peace activists there to help create that. Yeah, most definitely. And I think um, my biggest issue with the, with the whole conflict is that it's it's framed as if it's a an, a both sides issue, as if it's equal values. That's, and we know that the Palestinians do not have the same or equal type of military might um, as the Israeli government, since we send them billions of dollars in, in foreign aid every year. Uh, it's it's like comparing somebody who has a nuke to somebody who comes to a to the fight with a knife compared to a nuke. It's not an equal fight. So I think one of the issues I have is the framing that, oh, it's both both sides have to stop and, and calm down when it's it's not necessarily an equal fight. Um, I guess I guess the question is, you know, how do you balance that if at the moment it's not considered an equal fight in the eyes or it's, it's considered like a both sides issue when, in my opinion, it's not. How do you balance that with making sure that Palestinians have aid? That is necessary to their to the to their needs uh, because they don't have clean water in their in their um, in a lot of the areas that they live. They don't have uh, good education and schooling because you know a lot of the infrastructure is completely destroyed there. The employment is unemployment is extremely high. Uh, how do you how do you balance that? Um, if you were elected to the Senate, and how do you frame the conversation without alienate the people who are being oppressed? Yeah, well, I, I think it needs to be rooted in truth. And one truth that you're speaking to, Ray, is that there's a clear power imbalance. Um, and so, you know, one side clearly has a much greater military superiority over the other side. Um, and, um, and the aid dollars, you know, speak to that as well. So, yes, we need to start from a place of truth. Um, I would like to look up what the current foreign aid budget is to the Palestinian territories. Um, I don't have that exact number, but I think uh, certainly for USAID uh, to be doing development projects there uh, would seem to be a win-win situation because uh, because of the economic depression and un 
uncertainty and fear that's there, it does create fertile ground for recruiting uh, for terrorist organizations. Uh, young people who don't feel like they have any kind of future, um, they, they, they become very susceptible uh, to, to terrorist recruiting. Um, so we were able to promote some development there in terms of education, um, economic development, uh, then I think that's a win-win for both Israel and for uh, the Palestinian territories. Um, so it starts with truth. Um, and then I think the dignity uh, frame is really effective to think about our, our foreign policy there in terms of the actual economic development that's needed in the Palestinian territories. Um, and then certainly affirming the fact that, you know, Israel is a, um, is a multi-ethnic uh, democracy right now. Uh, certainly haven't agreed with everything from from some of their recent leaders, uh, but uh, at the end of the day, it is a democracy in the Middle East, and and that's certainly um, fertile ground for partnership with the United States. Yeah, and that this conversation always makes me think of there was a video that went viral earlier this year of Michael Brooks visiting um, some school. I I think it was in the Northeast, and he kind of broke it down to like this really isn't a complicated issue. There's one side where there's disproportionate death and there's one side where there's disproportionate power. Um, and, and I, I think that's just really, really important to always think about, um, but kind of pivoting. So, you know, um, earlier this week, I learned that you were the first environmental studies major to graduate from UW Madison. Um, I'm from I'm from Minnesota, so I have a problem with the UW Madison part, but the rest of that is is really cool. Um, you know, being being well, first of all, being an organizer in Wisconsin and being a Vikings fan is not easy. But uh, being that you kind of have that environmental background and obviously like being a young person, climate change is a really important issue to you. I know something that leaked even in like my personal organizing at like what is considered like a progressive liberal arts school um, is there's a lot of this kind of jumping on the bandwagon of, oh, carbon neutrality by 2050, carbon neutrality when it happens. And that's kind of even a narrative that's taken over the Democratic Party. And they consider themselves the party of science. But I think you and I both know that that's not what the science dictates. If they were the party of science will be the party that ad addresses this issue by the end of the decade, kind of like the Green New Deal um, states. But in your mind, why is it really important that we don't come to the table here with like a compromise of 2050, which is kind of the Democratic Party platform right now? It's the narrative that the president is pushing. So that's probably the way that we're going to be going for a while. Why do you think it's important to get that get uh, reduce our emissions sooner than that? Well, first to start with the environmental studies major thing, uh, it was it, part of the reason why I wanted to help create that major and elevate it from being a, just merely a certificate program is because we need a whole new generation of leaders with an environmental consciousness. Some of them may go into policy and politics, but others are going to go into other fields. And the more that consciousness is spread out among people in a lot of different fields, the greater of a constituency we'll have to be passing climate legislation of the sort that we're talking about. And so I was really proud to, to graduate with that. And hopefully, um, you know, that goes back to, again, Andre's question, how do we know you're actually going to do what you're talking about? Well, um, <laughs> 
everything I was talking about when I was in college was about how we need to solve climate change and, you know, build diverse coalitions to, uh, to, to get that done. And my biggest question was, how do we change the politics so we do have a greater constituency and a greater level of consensus uh, around the need for climate action? And all the work I did early out of college was with environmental uh, NGOs. Um, and actually one of the first climate bills I worked on was the, uh, the bill in 2010. So I've taken a lot of lessons learned about why that bill failed. Um, and then getting to the second part of your question about 2030 versus 2050, this is a really important choice in terms of how we frame the issue. Um, and this is a really good example of how I think I'm, I'm just different. And I feel like sometimes uh, my style of politics is really not represented on the national scale by establishment politicians right now. The way I look at this is 2030 needs to be the deadline because that is what nonpartisan impartial scientists at the IPCC have told us. So that needs to be our scale of ambition. And then the type of leadership we need is how are we going to organize people across a lot of different divides in American society in order to meet that 2030 goal. And so that's why we need the policies that we've talked about before, like a clean electricity standard uh, by 2030. Uh, but also I'm intrigued by, like I'm a bridge builder. I wanna see how we can get more millennial Republicans and conservatives and libertarians uh, to the climate movement as well. And there is an eco right that we would be mistaken not to uh, bring into our movement. They talk about issues like carbon taxes uh, they, they frame it as a revenue neutral carbon tax where they put a price on pollution and then they would return it directly to people through the form of maybe an income tax cut. I'm really open to those ideas. Um, there are others that I've heard from that uh, space as well that I think if those ideas help us build a constituency to solve the problem by 2030, uh, that, that I think is a positive contribution. But the way it's framed that I think is wrong is that the if the form of moderation that we're going down is delaying our deadline to 2050, which disproportionately impacts young people and those who are unborn right now, that I think is morally wrong. That is, that, that, that is generationally uh, unequal. Um, and so uh, the type of leadership I would bring in the US Senate is the urgency and the ambition and the goal of 2030. And then I'll be able to bring some unlikely partners to the table to solve the issue. And the, the recent example I could point to that had a similar breakthrough of politics is criminal justice reform. You know, what we saw with the First Step Act and many reforms at the state level, where you saw an unlikely alignment between left and right who were agreeing on the same solutions like reducing the mandatory minimum sentences, expunging criminal records, giving people a real second shot, ending the war on drugs, legalizing marijuana for different reasons. Progressives were coming at it from a social justice angle, how it disproportionately impacts black and brown people. Conservatives were coming at it from the angle of fiscal responsibility. Like this is a terrible use of public dollars and we need to reduce the size of our prisons. That's the kind of breakthrough I'm talking about for climate change. And it'll be, in my view, the difference between us passing bold climate legislation by 2030 uh, versus not passing it. Yeah, I really like that. Um you majored in environmental studies. That's that's amazing. I didn't know that. Um, and I think 
people are not taking the, the environmental situation as serious as it needs to be, uh, mainly because it's a slow burn instead of like a quick death or anything like that. It's something that's slow. So you don't necessarily tangibly see the effects right away. So I think that's why many people aren't addressing it. Um, so I, I do uh, appreciate that you're taking it serious and want to expedite the, 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 the ways we fix it. Um, but two questions, one is going to be really quick, and then the next one's more long, long answer. Uh, do you support Medicare for all? Yeah, so on that one, and I talked a little bit about it with, with Anders, I, I, my approach with this issue is that there's a government-run, CMS-administered health insurance plan that's available for everyone. I think that's the most effective way when I think about, again, issues like criminal justice reform, um, the revolution we had on LGBT rights, specifically around gay marriage, we have to be really intentional about how are we implementing these policies and how are we building cultural support for it? So right now, if you're in, um, if you're, let's, let's go to rural West Virginia, which has a Senator that's in the news right now. Okay. Um, and I've seen, you know, I saw Bernie Sanders, recent op-ed there. So let's go to rural West Virginia, you know, where, uh, you have some of the highest levels of uninsured population in the country and you have a government run, uh, solution available to people that is not one of these um, terrible, I was going to say a word I would probably regret later, but terrible uh, insurance plans that uh, have these giant deductibles and co-pays and, and doesn't provide great coverage versus a government run plan that, um, that, that covers everything for you. Uh, I think people are going to choose the government plan. And over time, that's going to bring people into uh, Medicare solutions. And I think that's the best way to get people on board with this. Um, I think we've seen recently with the mask mandates, for example, how much it kind of backfired when people feel like they're being mandated to do something personally by the federal government. Um, there's a lot of backlash to that, even though you know it's good for public health. So for me, I have the North Star, but again, another differentiation I think with our campaign is I'm actually thinking about execution as well. For me, again, it's not about the tweets. It's not about messaging bills. It's bills passed. And for me, I'm thinking, okay, what's the actual way we're going to implement this? Uh, and for me, I think that's um, starting with a comprehensive Medicare-like government-run solution on the exchanges uh, and then building from that. And if, and if, we're, um, and if, we, and if it's executed well, you know, employers are gonna put people on those plans uh, among those who are uninsured. One quick thing I gotta to add to this is, I talk a lot about how healthcare is a human right and it's unconscionable that we have people dying today uh, in the richest country in the world because they don't have healthcare. I also add something else to that, which is a fundamental aspect of dignity in our economy, which is right now, a lot of people are suffering from what some people call a job lock, which is uh, you're just stuck working for a big corporate company. Even if it's not a good fit for you, it's not promoting your well-being or your happiness, but you need the healthcare because you've got kids at home. And part of the vision I have for the future of healthcare in this country is de-linking healthcare from unemployment. Um, you, healthcare should be guaranteed for all. And so if you're someone who wants to maybe take a leap of faith on a new business or a new venture, um, you should have the freedom to do that. You know, when I was starting Millennial Action Project, 
uh, I was jumping into something where there is absolutely nothing, no benefits or anything. And um, thanks to the Affordable Care Act, I was able to send my parents' health insurance because I was under the age of 26. I want more people to have that kind of opportunity where if they're guaranteed healthcare and it's de-linked from their employment, they can take the leap of faith on that new venture. They can do what they're passionate about. Some people say I'm naive for talking about this. Uh, no, I, I do think that happiness and wellness should be part of our metric of success uh, as a society and guaranteeing healthcare is a huge part of getting to that. Yeah, most definitely. Um, I just want to challenge you a little bit on that because what, if I'm hearing this right, definitely correct me if I'm not. Uh, it sounds like you're talking about more of a public option. Um, and and my, my issue with the public option is an unforeseen issue that may arise, which is that if we have a public option, the insurance company companies will just throw all the sick people on there so that they don't have to pay for them and keep all the healthy people, which would overload the public option system and ultimately causes demise, which I think is a, a, a bad way to go about it instead of just uh, introducing the Medicare for all system. And the reason why um, I don't think that theory holds with healthcare is because let's look at Medicare. Um, once you turn 65, people are automatically introduced into that. They aren't given the choice. They're automatically put into that. And Medicare is one of the most popular public services in the United States. Uh, so I think it's very different from the mask example. Uh, I guess, what would you say to that? Yeah, well, for one, my dad is signing up for Medicare right now. And I can tell you something, it's, it's not very user-friendly. Like my, my dad is like very educated person who, who um, you think is most equipped to be able to figure out Medicare. And part of the problem is like you need four different plans just to like have one comprehensive coverage. You need Medigap and all these different things. And so um, I, I do think having some competition to ensure even the government plan is, is run well is, is super important. Um, and then the second point that you made is, is a really good one. Um, which is how do you make sure that health insurance companies just don't dump all the sickest people onto Medicare? Um, I think we need a protection against that. Um, and I, I'm, I'd be curious what in, in some of the Medicare um, bills, what protections they have for that, but clearly that that wouldn't be tenable um, for, for the insurance companies to do that because like you said, that would cause Medicare to fail right away. And, and, and I think what you're speaking to is that this is not a light bulb that can be turned on, you know, after one day. Um, this goes back, you know, about a century plus uh, where healthcare has been run by a private market linked to employment. Um, and, and so we're envisioning a new future where people in our generation are doing gig work. We're increasingly going to have maybe five or six different jobs or even frankly different careers uh, before we're done in our professional life. And we need a healthcare system that's uh, that's set up for that. Um, so yes, I think we got to protect against the, the issue that that you mentioned, um, and we got to phase in uh, this kind of plan to make sure that it's administered well. And and just to give you a sense of how a little bit convoluted it is right now, um, Medicare right now under CMS, a lot of it is actually administered by uh, private industry right now. Um, and I actually think part of the contracting process has led to the difficulty around the user interface for a lot of people. And so I just think that, you know, I think back to the launch of healthcare.gov uh, and how much that kind of lost public faith and confidence in the, at the beginning in uh, the ACA. 
Um, we need to make sure this is run really, really well. And so again, the execution is important. I think we should start with the, the government-run healthcare uh, available to, to everyone, allow people to sign up if that is indeed the best. If people are not signing up, then we know, okay, clearly we got to fix some stuff here uh, because you think that the costs are much more reasonable. The administrative costs are a fraction. It would be more like 2% overhead as opposed to 15% overhead in the private insurance. Um, and I think that's a good way to, to phase it in and make sure that it's uh, executed well. So just, just one more clarifying question about this. Um, rather, would you be, I understand that you want to start with the public option. I think there, there was like a wide variety of plans that were like this. I know for sure, like Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren's plan is kind of, was kind of similar to this where it starts with basically rather than Bernie's plan, where he would slowly start lowering the Medicare age, you just allow people to buy in. Would that come with like a mandatory sunset date on private insurance? Or would this be like you introduce a public option and then just slowly kind of expect people to sign up and for private insurance to die away a little bit? I think that was more like Kamala Harris's Medicare for all, Medicare for all plan. Yeah, the, the, the thing about uh, again, government policy for a quarter of the economy for millions of people in a very diverse country is very complicated. Um, and so when you're doing the first iteration of this, I think it would be impossible to know when is a realistic uh, sunset date. Uh, I think anyone who's pretending they know the answer to that, you know, is, is, uh, is probably like arrogant about what they know. I think I'm very humble in saying that I think we likely wouldn't know at the, at the beginning of this. Um, and so for a lot of like legislation that MAP has passed in the past, has passed in the past, um, you know, one was like a workforce innovation training program. And, um, you know, it started off as a demonstration to make sure everything is working before you scale it up to, you know, hundreds of millions of people. And I think the same thing should be true um, for this. But one thing you can also hopefully, you know, take away from my comments on this is I'm an unusual kind of like candidate for office. Um, if, if, you know, I, I resist a lot of boxes. I resist a lot of slogans because I try and get at the root of the issue. And a lot of the ways I talk about it aren't talked about from other candidates because I think a lot of people haven't like thought deeply about, you know, what is the issue? They just kind of sign up and say, okay, I'm for this. Um, I've actually like really thought about this and thought about, okay, how are you going to implement it? How are you going to get people on board with it? Um, and that's why I, I you know, I'm the only one talking about guaranteed healthcare right now on the campaign trail, uh, as an example. Um, so that's just, that's been my approach to it. Yeah. Um, so Steven, I have, I, I have one more question for you. Um, and I really like, you know, I didn't know this about you until, uh, when we, when we talked earlier this week, but, um, you're a really serious musician. Um, in high school, I was, really really like i was like an orchestra kid who was like doing music before school and after school all the time i've played cello for 14 years and my my covid project has been teaching myself guitar um and and i think this is like a really interesting discussion that i have with a lot of like other young people that are like here studying at a school with a lot of music majors um like the intersection of like environmental justice and like 
arts and music. Um, and that like justice doesn't just come, especially like when it relates to climate is seen very much as like the science changing physical infrastructure, finding a way to get like greenhouse gases out of our atmosphere. Um, but I just wanted to kind of hear like, what's your philosophy on, you know, how, like the importance of not only environmentalism and environmental advocacy coming from like a policy scientific side, but also from like an arts and music side. Wow, that's a great question. Well, I mean, the greatest protest movements over time, over the course of time have always had music and arts as a component to it. Um, and you think about, you know, in the 1960s, you know, everything that was going on there, like, you know, there's a soundtrack to movements. And so for a long time, my political life and my musical lives were pretty separate. You know, I would play in these bands and those spaces are like totally vulnerable and, you know, very honest. And, you know, you're, you know, you're just in this creative flow space. And then in politics, you know, it was all about the policy and the science kind of like you're describing. And I had this epiphany a few years ago that actually, you know what, these spaces need to come together. Um, the best of both spaces can reinforce each other. And by the way, that is just who I am as a person. And so I want to bring those identities together into, into one. There is a documentary film that helped inspire this called The Reunited States, where the director was like, you keep coming back to jazz music for your inspiration in politics. Like we need to combine, you know, these elements of your story. So as for me, music has always been a powerful vehicle to uh, connect with people who are different than me. And that often creates a conversation that leads to a really, you know, special place. Um, and so I'm really hopeful that now that I've made this personal decision to integrate these access aspects of my life, I'm bringing it out on the campaign trail and it'll be a big part of my time in the U.S. Senate. Um, you know, someone once joked to me like, so are you telling me basically like Bob Dylan's running for the U.S. Senate in Wisconsin? <laughs> and I was like, you know, I am going to take my acoustic guitar on the trail. I've I get asked to play Johnny Cash songs a lot. Last weekend, I played a Tom Petty song uh, with a band. They let me rip out a guitar solo. I had some people who came up to me afterwards saying like, I'm voting for you based on that alone. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I really hope to invite artists. I mean, certainly we, we've actually invited a number of artists and musicians to be part of our campaign, including at our launch. Um, we had um, an amazing musician from the Hispanic community here in Milwaukee. And I just feel like, if, if what's the key to transforming politics on climate? Um, yes, we need a new kind of conversation and we've got to put out the ideas we've been talking about. But I think one key to connecting with people on a different level is through, uh, is through the arts. Uh, and we need our generation's protest song. Uh, maybe we can write that one together. Yeah, never um, underestimate the power of, of, of music. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I have one. I have one follow up before. I know Andre has one more question, but I have I have one follow up before he does that. Um, what? And I know this is like a hard question to answer sometimes, but just for some insight, what are like Stephen Olacara's like top three to five listen to artists on Spotify? Oh man, it's a good question. <laughs> Tough to answer because I I have like a very eclectic. 
uh, list of artists uh, that I listen to. Well, I'll just give you some 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 of my favorites. Uh, number one would be Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit. <laughs> You're a Nirvana fan? I love Nirvana. Dude, I love it. Man, timeless, timeless. I first picked up the guitar in the mid to late 90s, so after Kurt Cobain had passed, and I, we were still feeling the ripple effects of Nirvana then. And the fact that we're still feeling it today, it's like powerful. I mean, I feel like who who can... I don't know why, some, for some reason, I've been studying Kurt Cobain really closely um, over the last few years, because this gets back to your question of like, why are you running now? Like why in 2022? Like what happened in the early nineties with Cobain was he was speaking a deep truth in the rawest and most honest way possible. And that caught fire and spoke to an entire generation. He didn't plan for it. He just thought, did what he thought was right. Um, and as crazy as it sounds like, I know I'm, I'm an underdog in this race, but I'm being my most authentic self in this race uh, for an office that I know I'm prepared for because I've had a lot of experience getting ready. And you know, if I can speak in such a deep way and uh, in, in a way that speaks to an essential set of truths that are out there about why our democracy is broken and how we can fix it, um, I think our campaign will be able to catch fire as well. So anyway, anything by Kurt Cobain would be up there. Um, I'd add to that Bon Iver, another big, uh, one of my favorite artists, uh, Skinny Love, I guess would be uh, one there. Um, I would probably put down, um, you know, one of the songs that got me to first pick up the guitar is Blink-182, All the Small Things. So I got to give them uh, a shout out there as well, Blink fan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my favorite band is Green Day, very much for the same reason that you oh. like Nirvana, but I love Blink-182 as well. Yeah. Well, I was just going to get to Green Day because I used to play in a punk rock band called Ferocious Green that basically was a Green Day cover band. And the guy who was the front man of that band, he looked like Billy Joe Armstrong. He had the jacket, the hair, every, he sounded like him too. Uh, so we've got some clips. I'll show you a funny photo because I reunited with that band at the State Fair this August. And uh, we got to play uh, a Green Day song, which was a lot of fun. So I'd probably put Green Day, Boulevard of Broken D Dreams on that list. Or actually not even better, I'd say uh, um, Basket Case. Um, or When I Come Around was one of the first Green Day songs I learned how to play. And then for the fifth one, I would say maybe a song by The Roots. I, I'm a big, big fan of The Roots. Um, uh, what's a good one by the roots i'm blanking on this i'm blanking on the name of the song i want to mention but another great song is uh seed 2.0 oh, I, awesome. I, I really i really i really enjoyed hearing about that actually i, I know andre's got one more question but thank you yeah. thank you for that that thank you I, I, yeah, I, yeah i'm a, i'm before transparent i have no idea what none of those groups are uh i <laughs> i have heard of green day so that's something, but I don't know any of the other ones. I have to check them out, though. Um, yeah, I was going to ask a serious one, but now I'm into this pop culture conversation. So since the show is called Empire Strikes First, um, what is your favorite Star Wars movie? And this will determine whether you get my vote or not. So be very careful. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I would say, objectively speaking, Empire Strikes Back is the best. 
Star Wars movie. And I would say my favorite Star Wars movie is The Last Jedi. So I think, again, objectively, Empire Strikes Back, just in terms of the plot, cinematography, all that stuff, um, acting, quality. But in terms of the message, The Last Jedi is powerful because it's the first time we hear a full articulation of what the Force is when Luke Skywalker is, is training Rey. And he talks about how the nature of the force is like a universal energy that flows through all living things. And through deep meditation and contemplation, you can facilitate that flow of energy and you can, and then you can wield it for, for good purposes or for um, evil purposes. You can either buy into uh, your sense of compassion uh, and empathy for others, or you can buy into your fear and sense of aggression and, and, and anger. Um, and so I, I believe in the laws of physics, but I also believe the force is real. I think, you know, short of defying laws of physics, I think there is a such thing as a force. Um, I've had some very weird things happen in my life uh, that maybe that's for the next podcast. But um, I do think that there is a synchronicity that happens uh, between human beings, that there is a for- energy that binds us all together. Um, and if we really get deep into our sense of self, our sense of purpose, reflecting on our role in the universe, um, I think we can learn how to uh, use the force as well. Uh, so that's why I'm a big fan of The Last Jedi. Because it really got to explaining that, which then I thought to myself, how did George Lucas come up with this? How did he come up with this idea in the 1970s? Uh, and one of my friends said he was probably on LSD, which maybe he was, but uh, um, that is one hell of a creative idea because when you get a movie motif like that, which speaks to, I think, a fundamental truth about humanity, man, it's powerful. I think we got to take that seriously. Probably just one of the endorsements of the geeks of Wisconsin. So congrats. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You just got, you just got like all the, punk rock and all the star wars fans in wisconsin want to vote for you just because of this so um so before we go steven uh is there anything that you'd like to plug your campaign website your twitter feed for everybody to follow absolutely well thanks so much for having me on guys i want everyone to follow us because we're building a grassroots movement here that's inclusive something that we're going to uh you know that i think is going to be historic in our state's history uh, so uh, stevenolicara.com, that's the central hub of our movement for uh, dignity and inclusion here in Wisconsin. Uh, my social media handles are at Stephen Olicara, and I invite everyone to be a part of it. Uh, sign up, volunteer. Uh, I can't do this alone. I'm, I'm many ways, you know, just like some of my first bands, I'll just put out a call and hope people respond to it. Um, and I think this is a, an idea whose time has come. So I hope people... Uh, get involved and uh, I hope to mobilize and organize with everyone. So I'd say, let's do this together. Let's make history. Um, It goes without saying probably, but I'll be, I'm the first, I'm proud to be the first Asian running for this office. I'd be the only South Asian um, serving in the U S Senate. And um, I think we can make history, not only in terms of representation, but also the kind of politics uh, that we need in order to solve climate change. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks for coming on Steven. And um... Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week.